busca de un mejor destino para ti lo que viniera de ti. Welcome to the Inside the Journey podcast. This is episode number 30 for Sunday, November 24th, 2013. I'm Nelson DeWitt. And I'm John Younger. And we are the creative team behind the upcoming documentary film Identifying Nelson Buscando a Roberto. Today we are continuing our discussion with Peter Cassidy Sibrian, and he's going to talk about some of the challenges he faces when trying to balance these two lives. Last week, we had a ton of people join us for the first time to hear Peter's interview, and I just want to say thank you to everyone who tuned in. I know it means a lot to Peter and to myself to be able to get our stories out into the world. If you're interested in more of these types of interviews, John and I put out new podcasts every Sunday morning, and the best way to keep up to date with them is by subscribing. Now, if you go to the page where you're either listening to this interview or you downloaded it, there is a link towards the bottom that you can click on to subscribe via iTunes or Stitcher Radio. And there's also a link where you can subscribe to the newsletter for our film and get updates about when it's going to be released. And now on with the interview. I think we're going we're gonna to switch gears a little bit and we'll start to focus on how things are now, you know, or, or in recent years, how have things changed for you? I know you mentioned that you have a son, so that, that obviously complicates things. Uh, you know, you're not 16 anymore and you can't spend summers down in El Salvador. So how have you remained connected and what have uh, some of the challenges been? Steve, I think for me, there's a lot of great things that happen and a lot of, you know, things that have happened that's kind of made it harder. For instance, My son was born in 2003. So for the first... What's, what's your son's name, Peter? Cameron. Cameron, okay. Cameron Cibrian, that's his name. Okay. Um, I think for me, he was born in 2003. So, you know, when the kid is, like, you know, just born, I was still spending a lot of time down there. But after the age of seven, you know, that's when it kind of made it where he was doing more sports things. There was It was harder for him to always... For me to get away as much. When he was younger, it was I was able to. I wasn't feeling like I was missing so much of it if I spent a month down there, because he was, you know, one years old, two years old. Um, also, another big impact for me that's made it harder for me to go back is not the fact of, you know, not wanting to return to El Salvador, but a lot of the cousins I grew up with, like the cousins of mine who I grew up when I was 15 with, a lot of them have come to the United States, where a lot of them now live in Virginia, Maryland, New Jersey. My sister now lives in New Jersey, like 35, 45 minutes away from me. So it's wow. something where I have all that my family have now come here. So a lot of the family that I have in, in Guarjila are, say, some cousins who are younger. Um, I would say so all my aunts and uncles are still down there, but it's something where Once my sister left and a lot of the cousins that I spent a lot of time growing up with left and came here, it's made it harder for me to always sit back and be like, well, do I want to go down to Guarjila right now to see my family? And do I want to spend all the money to go down there and see them to just see my aunts and uncles and stuff like that? And I think that's the hard thing that I've had to deal with, where my next trip I'm going to go down there is going to be next year for my, um, my niece and my nephew. One of them, two of like my niece and my nephew live down there, 
and my niece is turning 15, so that her quinceanera is a huge deal. So she's requested my presence at her quinceanera, so I'll be down there for that. But it's something where I think a lot of times when I was younger and I'd just go down there to spend my summers, now I look at it where, well, maybe now I want to go to, say, Cuba. I want to go to Nicaragua. I want to go to other places that I haven't been. So I think that's the harder thing is having that motivation to always want to go down there because a lot of my family has left, and I think that's the hard part for me. And you can just go to New Jersey or Washington or... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's the thing. And a lot of my younger cousins that are live down there right now, they were something where, you know, right now they're turning 17, 18 years old, where they were very young when I was little. So I didn't, I, I spent time with them, but I never was as close with them. Like, for instance, I was born in a refugee camp in Honduras, a Mesa Grande refugee camp in Honduras, Salvador refugee camp. A lot of the kids, like my two cousins, Luis and Esperanza, were both born there. I'm very close with them. Luis now lives 40 minutes away from me. Um, there was kind of a gap. After the war, there were, a lot of kids weren't really born. And then I would say I have other kid, cousins who are like in their 20s, like 22, 23. There are a couple of them, but a lot of them have now moved to the States too, and I was close with them. So they all live in the States now. So that's a hard thing for me where my other cousins right now that are turning 17, 18, who were very a lot younger when I was down there, like they were like six, seven, I guess. I wasn't as close with them, so it's harder for me to say, do I want to go all the way down there just to see them when I didn't have that relationship with them as much. And it's, it's kind of mm -hmm. sad because part of me wishes I would go down there and continue to go down there as much, but life gets in the way. You know, my son wants to do this, or my son wants to go, is going on this big trip, or he wants to do that, and I think that's what's hard. Yeah, I've, I've felt a similar um, challenge because my immediate family lives primarily in Costa Rica and Panama. And my aunts and uncles and cousins are in El Salvador. And I've become close to them over time. But it's still this, this decision of do I go to El Salvador and, you know, like take that trip? Or do I spend the time and go down to Costa Rica and, and Panama and see my brother and sister and, and you know, my cousins down there who I'm closer to. Uh, so you are, you know, you're constantly having to decide. And as you point out, sometimes you want to take a trip to somewhere else, you know, see different parts of the world. So it, it definitely is challenging to kind of, uh, and, and, you know, I've talked about this before. I, I hate like saying choosing that you're choosing which family members that you have to stay with, but you're, you know, you have to pick where you spend your time. And that's kind of what it comes down to, I think. I think it's that too. Plus, for instance, for me, um, I have a brother, I have um, three brothers in Honduras and one sister. And um, thank God for Facebook because I've got to stay in touch with all my family members via Facebook a lot more. But now part of me is like, I'd rather, I want to go to Honduras and, you know, get to experience time with my brothers and sisters down there because I never really got to do that that much. And when my grandmother was alive, well, her relationship to me was the most important relationship to me. So I would spend all the time down there. And I think she passed away in 2007. Uh, yeah, 2007. And it was just something when, when she passed away, you know, she passed away right around the same time as Cortina passing away. So when they both passed away, that was a huge connection for me that I lost. And then when my sister came to the United States and then my other cousin started coming, 
I lost a lot of that. And then with Facebook, I kind of feel like I can still keep in touch with my family members down there, even my young cousins, where I don't necessarily have the draw to go back as much. And if I do go back, I want to be able to go back and spend some time down there where now I look at it where the job, work, and everything, it's like, well, do I really want to go down there for just three days? Because then part of me feels like, am I just going to insult them by only going down there for three days? Or do you say, do I want to wait till say, next year for my niece's quinceanera and spend a week and a half down there and really get to spend some time with them? So I think that's another thing you have to balance, you know, and make the choice kind of harder. But, yeah, and I know, like, in my situation, it takes a, a day or two or four sometimes of travel just to get to these places. And you don't want to go there for a week. Right, that just doesn't seem like it's worth it to spend a few days there and then to move on. So, well, yeah, that's the some of the that's some of the stuff that I've had to deal with as well as the fact that I've made such other family members. I have such a big network in El Salvador that if I go down there, I want to be able to see everybody. And I think that's also hard for them to understand. Like, why don't you just spend all the time with us? And I'm just like, well, you know, for me, I was so fortunate at a young age to have people like like. Uh, Pilar Zamora, Ruben Zamora, his family really took me in, the politician in El Salvador. They really took me in. So, like, if I go down there, I want to be able to feel like I can have a chance to see other people that I have connections with down there because they, that really helped me growing up. And it's sometimes hard for my family to understand, like, why is he only spending three days with us and then three days in the city? Well, the, the family that I made in the city made it so I was able to come down there all the time, and it gave me that comfort level where I have to still see them too because they're my family as well so that's the hard part if you only can get like three days down there then it just sometimes feels not even worth going and that's what that's what's hard I, I, I have a question about balancing the two worlds um, which is how, how um, I mean you grew up in New Jersey and you're a you're a Giants fan as we've <laughs> given each other a hard time and a Yankees fan and <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, congratulations on your Red Sox. All right, uh, out of the way. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. You know, what's it like living between those two worlds? Um, and and you know, culturally they're different, and um, I think the awareness of the history is different. And um, and how has that changed over time? How has that it changed from when you were a teenager and going back and forth and and first getting exposed to it to now? not just balancing your time, but balancing the different realities. I, well, when I first went down to El Salvador, it was, it was a third world country, and it still is, but it was something where I was in a totally different aspect of things. It was very much, still very sexist country with certain things back then. Um, the roles were very different. You know, back when I was little, something where people got married, it was very shocking to me because my cousin who was older than me had a 15-year-old wife who was, I don't know, 19, and they were already married with two kids. That was something that was just unheard of to me. So understanding that culture was kind of a shock to me. It was also something where the masculine side was different. And I think for me, the change was, I started seeing the El Salvadoran culture change when, especially in Guajila, was when I first was down there, it was more very masculine. The man would do his, like, you know, he was the provider. He was this. He was that. Education wasn't the biggest thing. It was farming and stuff like that. And then I would say 
June that like 2003, 2004, something around then. A lot more people were going to the United States to get jobs. Um, the Guajilas started losing a lot of their younger people. Um, education, because it was years after the war, more kids were starting to be educated. Um, I would see the frequency of girls going to school. Like my cousins that were girls when I was little, they always wouldn't go to school. It, was, it wasn't always the big thing. And then as time developed, you would start seeing that it was made as if it was made to be a focus that these girls have to be in school, they have to be getting education, they can't just be staying home. So I, I started seeing some of that stuff change. Um, as far as your question, like I'm kind of lost on your question for like connecting with the United States. Like what, what would could you maybe like clarify that a little bit? With sure. I, I mean, first of all, when you tell people you're a disappeared child um, in the U.S., it's always such a strange term to me because none of you are children anymore. But, but, uh, but, you know, they don't they don't know what that is, and and a lot of people here don't have any concept of the war in El Salvador. They don't have a historical memory of it and what your family experienced there. As far as the stuff with the war and the politics, I think it's hard for me because, for instance, I was having dinner at a friend's house in Pennsylvania. I'd say a couple weeks ago, and I remember bringing up the topic with her father about, you know, Ronald Reagan. He was this huge Reagan supporter, very, you know, and I think it's hard for me because I'll sit there and I'll hear people be like, Ronald Reagan was the best president, and I'm not, I'm not saying he wasn't a great president or anything like that. I just think that the hard thing is a lot of Americans are very misinformed, where they'll see somebody. Or they'll see a topic of war. They'll see something, and they're like, "When I bring up El Salvador, people are like, that's the Sandinistas, right?" And I'm like, "No." <laughs> so then I'm like, "Okay." So then I, it kind of brings me back to reality, where I'm like, "They're just not educated, but they think they are." And I think that's something hard to deal with because people will sit there, especially like you know, my parents' generation or they're older, being like, "They'll remember remember Ronald Reagan," or they'll think they'll understand what the war in El Salvador was about, but they really don't know. And it's something where it's hard because, you know, for me to sit there and say, hey, listen, you know, the American government supplied the army in El Salvador thousands of millions of dollars, and these guns were led to the killings of, you know, my mother, other relatives. And because of this war, a lot of other relatives, the F again, don't take this as the FMLN did do, didn't do any wrong, because I think that's 100% BS. But I think it's because this war was down there, so many sides from family members that were against the FMLN lost their family members. Family members that were within the FMLN, they lost their family members. But, mm -hmm. you know, the war was brought on by so many different reasons. So when you hear someone being like, Reagan was this, or they were stomping out uh, communism, I'm sitting back being like, you know, if you really, as a history major, if you really look into it, there's so many innocent bystanders along the way that lose their lives. And I think that's the hard thing is when you hear people talk about it where you just you have to just kind of sit back and take it because to try to educate certain people like my friend's father who was just – when he was trying to discuss it, I was like, do I really want to have an argument with this man who obviously has no clue about the war in El Salvador but just understands it from the American mindset? So some, sometimes that's very hard on me because I'm sitting back. I took such a huge emotional loss because of it. But then I sit back realizing that, you know what, 
you, you can't blame them for knowing what they know, and you just are, are feeling the way they do or not being that well-informed. And it has made me very aware of why there's so much animosity in other countries towards Americans, because a lot of times they feel that we don't know the whole truth, and our, our media is skewed to only telling us a certain story. So, um, you know, that's the, one of the big lessons I learned from being from El Salvador and trying to balance both worlds, is really having a respect for everybody's culture, everybody's, what they go through, and just because you hear something on TV or just because you hear, you know, the American media portraying this is what happened in this part of the world, really taking a step back and really understanding that that might not be the whole truth. You can't really just jump on the bandwagon of what that might be. Mm -hmm. But as um, as far as your question on balancing the both lives in Gorgila in the United States, I think it was interesting for me because my mother was a social worker growing up. So, you know, I grew up in a very wealthy town, but at the age of 14, I was working at Burger King. I was working at a British tea room. I had, like, I had a couple jobs. I wasn't, you know, it was just different. And something where my mother made me really work for everything I would get in life. And I guess I could say that I wasn't as spoiled as some of the other kids that I went to school with. So it made me really appreciate more when I was down there and I'd seen these people, like, I can honestly say coming back from El Salvador, the biggest thing I took for granted was a hot shower. Because in Gorgila, you would take pila baths, where you'd have this big, you know, cement tub, and you'd dump buckets of water over here to give yourself a shower. And how, you know, if you tried to take a pila bath at, say, 8 in the morning, you'd be freezing. So you'd have to wait till like, 12 o'clock in the high noon when it's warm out. So, you know, just little stuff really started making me very appreciative of what I had in the United States. So going there, I was just lucky. Like, I didn't overthink things too much. You know, I just kind of went with the flow. It, was very, it wasn't easy, like, I think, for me. The thing I was always very guilty of was with my grandmother, they would try to spoil me. And I think at first they would be like, they would want to, like, you know, have chicken soup and kill a chicken so I'd be able to eat a chicken for dinner. They would be trying to, like, you know, buy all this, you know, buy macaroni and stuff like that and all this other stuff for me. And that was very hard. So I think... I would say after my first summer down there, the next time I went back, every summer I would just come down with a little bit of money and I would just give it to my grandmother on the side and I would just be like, this is for this. I don't need the chicken. I don't need this stuff. I would start going to the cities and bringing back food. from. I'd take the bus down to Tlatanango and get simple food. And I'd really try to, you know, I remember I, I would eat a lot of top of ramen soup. Because the ramen soup, would, it could stay there for a long time. It wasn't too expensive. And that's the one thing I really started seeing myself having to do is just really watch my certain behaviors. Being like, you know what, the certain things that you would do in the United States, I didn't want to go out and buy all this fresh produce and all this fresh milk and stuff like that. Like, I wanted to just not show up as much. I would want to, like, I remember the clothing. I wouldn't want to wear fancy sneakers that much when I was down there. I wouldn't want to, you know, I think the only thing I'd ever get made fun of is my designer underwear. Because that, <laughs> I always thought that was a funny thing. And, but otherwise than that, I tried to really, you know, I didn't want to, I didn't want to show up my cousins. I didn't want to, like, as I felt so, that was a hard thing for me, is being like, when the United States growing up with Nikes and, you know, name, Tommy Hope, your name brand stuff, 
I would say after the first summer being down there, I really started thinking, wow, like they see Tommy Hilfiger, whether it's in the streets or whether it's in clothing stores, it's really expensive. And me walking around Gorhila with this stuff could be sending the wrong message. So that was something that I had to really start watching with myself. And I think it was good because the, the more I started trying to live the way they lived and trying not to come off as the, the spoiled American, they started opening up to me. I got to start spending a lot more time. It, just, it felt different and it felt better. So when you're living in the United States, it also made me more appreciative of being like, wow, like when my friends would complain about certain stuff or when my friends would be like, you know, my, my parents didn't get me a new BMW for my 17th birthday. Like, wow, like I just, it's just nice to get a car. It's just nice to have a car. Like, so I think that's, I think it was very beneficial to me. It made me very appreciative. Of it's nice I to have roads. Yeah, yeah. I was like, it's nice to have a hot shower. The fact that I get to have a hot shower and I don't have, you know, there's not a million people looking at me when I take a shower. That, that's a nice feeling. That, you know, so it's different. But I, it's, it's, it's been a very good experience for me. But I think for a lot of children, when I was a, I was still a child when this happened to me. And I think a lot of the kids now that deal with it during their 30s, it's a lot harder for them. They've had a, you know, it's it's not as easy for them, or they overthink things. And I think that's the hardest thing about when you're reunited with your family, say in your late 20s, early 30s, is you overthink things. And the beauty of what I had was, I was just so young and naive, I didn't overthink things too much. I kind of really just. I really wanted to make my focus not disrespecting anybody else, you know. God, I, I've been smiling the whole time just because, as I said before, there's so many similarities to our experiences. And I just, I love what you're saying because I've experienced it myself where it just broadens your horizons and gives you a whole new perspective on the world. It also depends on, like for me, and I don't know with, with your situation and your grandmother's side or with your family side, but for me, my grandmother was such a big influence. And I think when I learned my whole story, I was very resentful. I was resentful to my father. I was resentful to the fact that here's this, you know, I lost my mother. I lost her at an early age. I only have one picture of her. That's it. I have no pictures of me and my mother together. And that's something that's like, it's hard for me. because I, As I see my son grow up in all the pictures we have, that's something that I've always wanted. And it's something that, I wish I had more than anything. But when I was younger, I had a lot of resentment. I had a lot of anger. And my grandmother was very much like, these people killed my, a bunch of her children. And her biggest thing was, you have to forgive them. You have to forgive them. Even though it's very hard, you have to forgive them. And to hear a woman who lost three or four kids during the war, lost her grandson for years, be so opening to forgive these people, it has very much humbled me and it's very much... When I hear people talk about El Salvador, or when I hear people being like, wasn't it so difficult? Wasn't it so this? I just sit back and like, you know, I look at everything I have. Like, I've lost my mother. I've lost a lot of, I lost a big part of my family. In 2003, I was diagnosed with ALS, but I still look at it as something where I'm still very grateful. And as far as everything that's happened to me and all the stuff with war and blaming people, I, really, I just can't, I can't do it because I feel like I'd be disrespecting her. I just have to be very humble, very forgiving. And if someone talks about El Salvador and they don't know about it, the best thing you can do is try to educate them in the nicest way possible and never step on their toes and make them feel bad because then they can just blame, you know, they just don't know or they make they think differently. I think that's the hardest thing for me is to try to 
stay humble through all this and go through all those emotions and still have that feeling of not holding a grudge or not having resentment or anger. And I think that's hard every day. Well said. <laughs> I think that's like that's a great place to sort of uh, end things or, or begin to wrap things up. But before we conclude this interview, I know you were working on a couple projects to tell your story, um, both a film and a book. Uh, would you like to share some of what you've been working on and, and uh, what those projects are about? As far as the film, um, I have to go down to do some reshoots in El Salvador. And I have, I'm closing my, the way I've just, like, took me years to figure out how I wanted to close the film. I had a lot of great interviews from one of the last interviews with Cortina. And what I'm doing is I want to end the film with my son's first trip to El Salvador and Honduras to meet his family. The hard thing is I know how I want to end the film. I'm just not emotionally ready at this present time, but hopefully in the next year or so I'll be able ready to do it. But I have to go down and meet my father and kind of my way of closing my film is to go over a lot of these issues with my father. And I haven't seen my father since 2006. So it's something where when I'm ready to finally close that chapter, I'll go down there and finish it. But as you know, when you're making this film, it's a very emotional process. It's very hard. And when I first started, I started, I had this huge gusto, I was ready to go with it. And then as I started going into the emotions and dealing with stuff, it made it a little bit harder. And then I really knew how I wanted to end the film. That's what made it hard. And then I, I'm, I'm in the process of writing a book. I'm working with a friend of mine, Sarah Pipko, who's helping me do a lot of the ghost writing for it. And it's just, you first get out there and everyone's like, when are you, when's it done? When's it done? When's it done? And you're like, well... When it's a story that's so personal to you, as, you probably, as you'll know with your film, you second-guess yourself. You're like, well, do I want to add this into it? Do I want to put this out there? How do I want to do it? Do I want to – do I want ever? How, how do I approach this? And I think it's all the small questions on funding, how, I, what, you, know, how you want to put it out there, how you want to tell your story. It's not easy. And at first you think, oh, I'm just going to make this film. It's going to be great. I'm going to tell my story, and then when you really dive into your subconscious about who you are, what your story is about, it takes a while. So I'm having to rewrite a lot of things. I want to make it really authentic. So I'm hoping in the next couple of years to have it all finished and wrapped up. But I also look at it where I don't also want to rush it, put it out there via some network that I don't feel like I could, that I'm selling something out. As well as if I said, I want to keep it authentic where I do not, and my biggest thing with my book or with any kind of thing I do with El Salvador is I want to show respect to Pro Buscada and Cortina and the people that influenced me where I want to make it really good and powerful and something where I don't feel like I took the wrong avenue to complete it. So that's the hard part for me. And do you, I'm working do you have a name for the book and the film? Uh, the film would be called Tears from Within. It's mostly mm -hmm. just, it's a, the way I want to do it is I want to keep it with my personal story, growing up as a little kid down there and kind of do a chapter segment of different chapters and then kind of going through all my emotions. And I think I started filming it in 2005 because I just, I wanted to film it. I wanted to get some of the shots that I'm very grateful I did because I got an interview with Cortina. I got an interview with a lot of good people. And now it's just having to figure out how to finish it and going through all that emotions and I think for me, a lot of it, the way I want to end it, I'm just not in the mental state mentally right now to go through all those emotions right now. So instead of trying to rush to put it out and ending in a different way, I've just kind of taken a back seat and I'm just going to wait until I'm really able to do it and feel comfortable doing it. 
But as mm -hmm. far as the book, I don't have a title for the book yet. I'm still working on it, but the book is more or less, you know, I want to do a book that's kind of like from my first meeting my family, through all those emotions, through having a son in 2003, to being diagnosed with ALS, to doing the whole kind of thing and wrapping it all up in that way. So it's a process. And I'm, I'm very, like, when I see how much work you've guys done on your movie and all your stuff, it's, it's very inspirational. So I like the fact that I see that you guys are taking your time with it and it kind of, you know, for me, it's very reassuring to know, hey, you're, you're making your film and it's taking you a while and it's, you're putting your time and effort into it. So I'm very lucky to have you guys as an influential part. So I, I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, thank you. Likewise. And, yeah. And we're lucky to have you here today. Well, Peter, just want to say thank you so much for, for coming you. on. This was, you know, phenomenal. Um, just, just for myself even, you know, we've, we've connected over the years, but I don't think I've had a chance to really kind of talk to you about your story and some of these things. So it was great to kind of hear, you know, like you're not alone, right? Like there's someone out else out there going through these things. So uh, just want to say, I think go ahead. That's a big, I, I think it's also something where we're very lucky because we're both very vocal about it, where I think it's very helpful to people who aren't as vocal about it or people who are just finding out about their family. And it's something where what we went through Unless you went through it, it's very hard to relate to it. It's very hard. It's very hard to understand all the different aspects of it. And it's, I, I'm hoping with your film, it will bring more awareness to that. And so I, I really hope that. All right. That concludes our interview with Peter Cassidy Sibrian. Hope you enjoyed it. Thank you so much for being here. And we'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.